वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस दिथ एंड किन will think about relatedness and its links with inheritance social structures laws and the overall nature of interactions in the world how are relatives recognized in the human animal and plant world do plants have relatives in a technical sense is there a fundamental or universal link between altruism and kinship can relatedness be measured and how are no father no son offsprings possible Why are there rules around who to marry or not marry? Why are kins more likely to help one another? How does familial organization influence the social? And what is the long-term future of relatedness in the world? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Raghavendra Gadakkar. He is a professor at ISC Bangalore. and studies animal behavior ecology and evolution he is interested in the evolution of cooperation and conflict and has spent all his life working on indian paper wasp ropalidia marginata professor partho pratim majumdar he is a human population geneticist and is with isi calcutta and is also the founder of national institute of biomedical genomics and professor deepak mehta he is a sociologist and is with shiv nadar university he is interested in the study of disorder so raghavendra why don't we set the ball rolling with you um maybe in the animal world and we'll get to the human world by the by as we go along what does the notion of kinship mean there what does it mean to be related and how recognized is it how tacit is it how explicit is it take us to that world a little bit and we'll see what concepts come out and we'll unravel them as we go when we talk about social interactions between animals especially between individuals of the same species mm-hmm. today it's unthinkable that you do not bring relatedness into the discussion right but this is not a very old thing in fact before the mid 1960s nobody really talked about relatedness being important in modulating social interactions was it unimportant or it was not thought about it was all? not thought about it sometimes implicit sometimes assumed but uh, was never really explicit right and in the mid 1960s um englishman called wd hamilton Mm-hmm. solved what we call the paradox of altruism right. why should animals ever be altruistic why should they help each other why should they help each other uh, especially at a cost to themselves the cost uh, yeah. at a cost to themselves and this should actually be unselected by natural evolution, selection, natural evolution. selection. Yeah. he solved the paradox by showing that if you help related individuals your relatives then it's not so paradoxical after all because in to some extent you are getting the benefit back because copies of your genes 
which are also inside the bodies of those you help will benefit mm. and that's precisely the definition of relatedness right how many copies of what proportion of your genes are in somebody else and from that day onwards relatedness has become perhaps the most important factor in this discussion and today we have reached a stage where some people argue that it has become too important and we should look beyond that or we should not we should give importance to other factors so it's gone through this huge phase of being important in our understanding animal and interactions what 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 i mean so at least today it seems like common intuition and um, obviously hamilton has had a great role to play in that but what would the criticism be of a position of this nature i mean does it work reasonably robustly across all species where does it break what are the exceptions if at all and so on actually that's fairly straightforward and one would actually be surprised that people have not Uh, taken more precaution about this hamilton clearly showed the relatedness is one of the factors which would drive the evolution of altruism right and the other two other factors would be the benefit that the recipient of altruism gets mm-hmm. and the cost that the actor pays and he produced a simple mathematical relationship between these namely that the benefit that the recipient gets multiplied by the relatedness between actor and recipient this product should be greater than the cost that is being paid by so relatedness individual. is a proportion or relatedness is simply the proportion of genes that two individuals share sure. which is usually is between 0 and 1 sure. and therefore if i help my brother he is only related to me by one half right so the benefit so brothers are share 50% of 50% their... genes right so if i help my brother the benefit he gets translates as one quarter to me and not one half uh, not if he gets a benefit of one that translates as one half to me because he's only related to me by one half <laughs> and in the so this would be one of the hamilton rules this is the hamilton's rule this is the hamilton's which rule. in which benefit and cost are important but almost everybody nowadays focuses on relatedness and they don't measure the benefits and costs as carefully as they should Right, right. It's partly right. true that it is difficult to measure, but it is possible to measure. And so, benefit and costs have become relatively neglected, and everything is relatedness, and that is the sort of criticism. Not that right. relatedness is unimportant. So it's misapplication or somewhat incomplete, incomplete testing of Hamilton's rule. No, I think you brought up a very interesting notion of uh, measurement, and that's where part of probably you come in. How easy is it to measure how? like or unlike i am to you or you to anybody else or me to anybody else how how difficult is that at at a technical level so there are two ways of doing it but before i get into that i do want to make a comment on what raghavendra said sure so um hamilton of course set out this rule right and and it's a testable rule and you can apply it and you have yes. yourself applied it in many places but you will recall that this is in the 1950s right prior to that you will recall that holden actually didn't set out this equation yes. but he did try to make an equivalence of siblings with first cousins this is early 1900s no no this is 50. 1930s 1940s okay yeah, in a series mm. of so the notion uh, of uh, measuring relatedness uh existed but mm-hmm. uh, hamilton actually set out uh, the the theoretical underpinning and set out this equation and obviously haldane's notion had nothing to do with genetics it was just oh, it oh yeah absolutely genetic absolutely yes. he mentioned yes. about this relatedness mm-hmm. between siblings and similarly you can measure relatedness between and i'll come to how you measure sure. relatedness between first cousins sure. and what he was able to show 
through this relatedness measure is how many pairs of siblings are equivalent to a pair of first cousins <laughs> so it's it's so for example if you if if you had a sibling who was drowning yeah right who do you would save you, would you would you jump into the water at the cost of your life compared to if you had four first cousins drowning right that would be equivalent so first cousins would be 1/8 of you 1/16th as a matter of fact oh, for right Right. So, um, uncle, niece, aunt, nephew is one eighth. Uh, first cousins will be one sixteen. So you said, how do you measure? Essentially, uh, like Raghavendra said, the proportion of genes that you share. But this sharing is of a particular kind. Mm-hmm. It's not. There are we differentiate between sharing as you perceive mm-hmm. and sharing as you inherit. Mm-hmm. Sharing as you perceive is called sharing by state, mm-hmm. and sharing as you inherit. is called identity by descent or sharing by descent right it's the sharing by descent because that, that's the heritable component that's the heritable component that, right. that's what you're inheriting from your parents and right. uh, you can mathematically work out a formula in order to figure out given a particular relationship and given the parent offspring relationships you can actually work out so what how, proportion how, how do you do it you just so, take some so, blood from me or some any yeah, any so so there are two ways one is you can work it out theoretically mm-hmm. but how do i measure the relationship between you and i empirically yes the way to do it again i mean uh, it's only an approximation because we don't know who your common ancestor and my common ancestors are mm-hmm. they would go back a long ways and we don't we haven't traced the pedigree for sure. that long so what we try to do is essentially take take your blood sample sequence your genome take my blood sample sequence my genome and now we have because of various genomes that have been actually sequenced we have an average idea as to what we might share just by chance beyond mm-hmm. that would be what we probably share because of common ancestry and and when you map the genomes are you able to say what is heritable component and what's not no not 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 between uh, not unless you know uh, the the pedigree oh. so you can only get an estimate of the heritable component you wouldn't know exactly what the heritable component is right yeah, so you only get an estimate and the larger the data set the more individuals that you have the more data that you have these estimates become more and more reliable but obviously there's no way to know ancestry all the way to the um, no so so you have to do it in in an indirect fashion but when it comes to for example uh, making a prediction about whether the offspring is going to get a genetic disorder or not mm-hmm. there you don't want to really rely on approximate uh, things you need the pedigree because you're counseling the parents whether or not they should abort the child or you know whatever because there's a, there's a, there's a specific kind of genetic disease running in the family you don't want to take any chances there Interesting. so um yeah so the the estimates don't do there you need to get uh you know you can you can we can estimate of course but you need to get a little bit more uh, stronger evidence because you're going to counsel the family and so on so yeah there you need the pedigree uh, relationship otherwise um your estimates are not going to be very firm interesting deepak where are you on i think um, this whole notion of jumping into the river to say four cousins or my sibling or something to that effect do kins help each other why what does the anthropologist or the sociologist say how much of this makes sense to you at your level uh, just before one gets into that uh, you know we we begin to think about relatedness in uh, two 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 ways hmm. the first is uh, through a blood and descent of course uh, there is a way in which you begin to think about relatedness that's that. genealogical that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, through agnates and uh, things like that but also through marriage 
there is a very powerful notion of relationship that is given to us through marriage. Right. Now, once we begin to think about... Isn't uh, that a part of descent and genealogy? No, no, no. Because uh, you always marry an out-group. Now, mm. the out-group uh, or people who are outside the group, uh, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise, you know, that is unthinkable. That would be clear, like incest if you marry within the group. Sure. Uh, so, uh, what you do is now the out-group itself is different in different societies. In some societies, uh, it is the preferred form of marriage if you marry your father's brother's daughter. That is your first relative. Your, why, why would that be preferred? Among Father's brother's daughter. Daughter. That is your... That's um, first cousin, right? That's first cousin. First, that's right. Yeah. First In some sense. And this is uh, the preferred form of marriage among uh, uh, some uh, um, among Muslim groups. It's a, it's a Quranic injunction. Whereas in other societies, you marry your mother's brother. Mm-hmm. which is what happens in uh, That's much mama. of uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah your mama in right. much of south india right. now how does one begin to think about relatedness given those sorts of issues right uh, do you map it uh, uh, only through the descent line or the bloodline or do you map it also through the marriage line now if you begin to introduce uh, uh, relatedness through affinity marriages uh, in our this is where it gets a little circular because you have double relationships that's right. right that's, that's the issue. right so then you begin to think about this then uh, who are the four that you have thrown into the river? <laughs> are they related to you from your father's side? Are they related to you from your mother's side? Are they marriageable? Are they not marriageable? Right. That's the issue that we would ask. Those are the sorts of questions that uh, the anthropologist uh, would be asking. And do you give different weightages to whether it's on the father's side or the mother's side? At least in the kind of things that we are talking about? Uh, then it becomes a question of personal choice. Supposing sure. I don't want to marry that person yeah. and it's from my father's side or my mother's side who's marriageable, mm, Better the person round, sure. you know. Uh, so, so that's that's the way it goes. Then that's a question of a uh, uh, personal choice, uh, and uh, different societies mobilize kin networks in different sorts of ways. Right now, it seems to me that this is one form of relatedness, which is. Uh, uh, almost written in uh, stone. But there is another kind of relatedness which I'm uh, also equally interested in is uh, uh, how does one begin to relate to friends Hmm. where none of this uh, precondition is given. How does one establish friendships? Hmm. And what are the forms that friendship takes? Hmm. Because uh, in some cases, friendship may result in uh, marriage. In other cases, it may result in something else. You know, and uh, I mean, you have it sort of... uh, mythicized in uh, Bollywood mm-hmm. you know two friends uh, uh, forever and so on all those sorts of uh, things but it seems to me that uh, friendship is about as old as kinship that uh, I don't think it's possible to have one without the no, other okay so let, let's let's put it this way so a friendship that culminates in marriage let's say it's of the opposite sex and now I know obviously there are different variants today um, is that a stronger form of relatedness? The word stronger is what I'm trying to get a critical response on, if you know what I mean. It would, in most cases, be a more personal form of relatedness. Mm-hmm. That I am activating personal choices. Mm-hmm. That if I'm going to marry my friend, uh, or as it happens uh, in uh, this new way of arranged marriages, first you get to know the person and then you go out for six months or eight months and then you decide to get married. The idea being that before you marry your spouse, uh, he or she must become a friend. I think those are important considerations. I think that uh, we don't give adequate attention to what is the value of uh, friendship? How does it work itself out? Um, Given that... uh, much of our other relationships are, you know, are there in advance and we have very little to do. 
you know, so I mean, if we stay on that for a minute, and you know, obviously in the context of relatives, one can say that one is one half or one fourth or one sixteenth and one eighth and so on. I mean, there isn't a similar measure. I can come in. First order, second order. I can come in for a minute. Yes, he talked about relatedness in terms of marriage and fathers, brothers, daughter being different from mama and so on. I think one can make the argument mm. that those kinds of things can be subsumed under the B and C of Hamilton's rule. What are they? So that is the benefit and the cost of Hamilton's rule. So if I worry about somebody who is drowning, mm-hmm. the question is what is the cost to me of saving which of course would be the probability of my drowning. Sure. But what is the benefit to me of saying saving that person? Mm-hmm. And that's where this would come in. So if I live in a community where you marry your father's brother's uh, daughter, then if it is a father's brother's daughter who is drowning, the benefit would be much greater of saving that person. So I think in principle one can subsume those things under the benefit and cost equation and still be able to work with Hamilton's rule. Does it have to It's do with like the variation. economic uh, um, uh, factors there? Does it have to do with who see, pays dowry to whom and things of that nature? Or this argument has been made, and hmm. it's uh, uh, there is basically this is the ecology argument right. that you marry these close relatives so that property is kept within the group. Right. You don't want a distribution of the corp property. This is about benefit and cost and so on. But when you begin to look at the actual availability of spouses who are actual fathers, brothers, daughters in a given group, it is not more than point zero six percent of the time. Given the age uh, uh, equations and so on, age This, equations, number of siblings, and different right. levels and yes, so on. Yes, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the ecological argument doesn't actually hold ground because it's happening a minuscule uh, 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 number of times. Now, if you say that no, but you know what is happening actually over here is that you're not marrying your father's brother's daughter, but you're marrying your classificatory parallel cousins. That is to say, who are spread across the male line. That is, I may marry my father's brother's daughter's sons. And so on. You know, you move uh, uh, horizontally uh, uh, that way. You you get what I'm uh, uh, trying to say. You move to that so, branch. So my father's father's brother's uh, uh, son's daughter. Right. That's what is happening. Right. So that you know, I can move. Uh, uh, I can move that way. Uh, so that those are the prescribed forms of marriages. Now, given that you have extended families and you have fathers, fathers, brothers, uh, sons, sons, daughter, and so on and so forth, and you keep going on and on. Now, what happens in uh, those sorts of uh, cases? The notions of relatedness become incredibly complicated. Yeah. So, at one generation, these are relatives who are related to you, uh, who are your blood relatives. At another generation, these are relatives who are related to you through marriage. Right. So, how do you then begin to uh, negotiate issues of benefit and cost? Now, no, that's interesting. So, once we began to do the, once we begin to look at this, then you say that okay, let me pick up something like uh, indebtedness. When uh, uh, rural uh, peasants and so on there is a stress and you begin to to think about indebtedness when people are indebted and the bank is foreclosing or the money lender is foreclosing and so on uh, so who are the people that these people will go to asking for an advance loans now so in much of getting to the notion of the guarantor and so on right that's right now in much but relatedness becomes very important because the people you ask for loans are related to you through marriage yeah all right But supposing you've married your mother's brother, yeah, how do you ask that person for a loan? The point is that you can't, 
and then you begin to see a spike in suicide rates yeah because those loans are dried up yeah now so how do you begin to think about relatedness so you know, you know have, this yeah. is the yeah. way that marriage actually complicates uh, 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 the situation yeah it kind of makes it from a nice neat graph which goes from one layer to another starts creating these loops that loop into themselves but i think deepak spoke of this notion of mother and father so in this way that you measure things is there any different on either no. the mother side or no. father side so it's totally so uh, so for genes yeah it's sense. very symmetric absolutely symmetric so they, we don't uh, at all distinguish between the paternal line and the maternal line unless hmm. there are certain elements in the genome that are paternally inherited and there are certain elements in the genome that are maternally inherited right the paternally inherited ones is the y chromosome right. the males have a y chromosome the females don't the maternally inherited ones even though all of us have carry what's called the mitochondrial dna mm-hmm. which is outside of the nucleus that's only uh, passed on by the mother to all her children irrespective of gender right. so that's the maternal line that that's inherited so uh, except for those two specialized cases uh, there is we make no difference between the paternal inheritance and the maternal inheritance but before i move on deepak i have a question for you like you said that uh, marriage presupposes friendship this need not necessarily be so in the uh, pre no, of course not i think maybe it's a contextual yeah, yeah. model I, i was i was talking about contemporary forms uh, yeah, so when you know even in arranged marriages uh, before the, pe- the two get married they go out for six months or whatever a certain amount of time uh, to become friends uh, i mean well i mean it's it's, it's I, not a law i mean this I is not a law yeah, it's an observation in, yes, in some contexts yeah. how how complicated or complex are i just wanted to say yes. that another situation when the sort of <laughs> symmetry disappears hmm. is the Uh, has to do with the kinds of insects that I study, mm. which uh, where the oh, sex changes. Males do not have neither a father nor a son. So in the wasps and uh, bees and ants that I study, they have neither a father uh, nor uh, a the son. males have neither a father nor a son. Only the males. Uh, only the males, and the reason for this is because the females can uh, produce daughters or do produce daughters through fertilized eggs. by fertilizing their eggs with that of a sperm from a from a male but then they actually produce sons uh, through parthenogenesis through their unfertilized eggs so uh, that son who is produced through unfertilized egg has a mother but he has no father right he has a grandfather but he doesn't have a father right. and when he then <laughs> mates and tra- passes on his sperm to another female she only uses that sperm to produce daughters right so he has daughters so these are alternate generations but she produces sons by her own so he a male neither has a father nor has a son and that's another situation it's kind of alternate where, in a way yes that's right every male has a uh, when i tell my students they have neither father nor son they say it cannot be true then when i tell them <laughs> but they have a grandfather and a grandson then they say oh then it might work there's some justice <laughs> What yeah. about what about the plant world? Is that is that is that so? For example, we'll get into this notion of who helps whom and the benefit. Huh, but before we get analysis. into the plant world, I think I yes. should say that even in the animal world, yeah, we Partha and I measure relatedness as by looking at DNA. The animals obviously don't do that. Yeah, but, but there animals, has to be some way of recognizing. The animals right? recognize. There is fairly strong kin recognition, mm-hmm. and the animals get into all the problems that you are talking about. It's not unique to humans. They have exactly the same kind of problems. So they so also, they also worry just about, as you say, yeah. use proxies 
to estimate relatedness mm-hmm. they cannot estimate only parsa and i can estimate relatedness with accurately by looking at the dna with all animals have to use proxies mm. the most common proxy used is familiar memory of familiarity during early childhood because that seems to be a very strong proxy if you are very familiar with somebody in your childhood likely to be very closely related to you probably your sibling you know two chicks growing up in the same nest or so very close so this is then used as a proxy for relatedness right. in a positive way to help and in a negative way to avoid mating with there are many examples of this and what is the manner in which that influences so um, is there is there a chemical biological kind of basis to this proximity because what exactly happens it's one thing to say that i happen to recognize this face but that that's that's a that's a humanistic mm. almost anthropomorphic explanation to this so what exactly happens how does one well, the attitude scientific to this is very interesting when something is so obvious you don't even investigate it must be true there must be so we don't normally however it's a how question however you can investigate this much more clearly and that brings us to the plants right so in the case of plants you can actually show there is a chemical reason why a certain pollen grain will not germinate if it falls on a closely related plant stigma there is a chemical barrier to the growth of that so a plant cannot grain. fertilize itself right when plants don't want to fertilize those plants that don't self they actually have a chemical barrier so even if the pollen grain falls there it simply has a chemical barrier to germinate and then one thing one one imagines that similar things must be happening you know when uh, two birds uh, when a bird decides not to mate with this particular so we have not investigated higher animals but clearly such a thing and, and in microbes one can see uh, the role of chemicals in this uh, you know this is i don't know whether it's exactly the same situation but organ transplantation yeah? right right this is this is exactly the same very phenomenon interesting. Yeah. so uh, not very clear whether it's a immune system that is at work of course the plants have immune system uh, we have you know the the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system the plants most likely don't have the adaptive, adaptive. immune system but they do have the innate, innate. immune system system which is the you know first set of players that will immediately wake up and start acting before they wake up the adaptive immune system which has memory the innate immune system does not have the memory right, right? so the uh, examples that ragavendra is giving from the plant world is probably due to this innate immune system which we haven't really studied in great detail but i'm no botanist so i don't know if people have studied but what he's saying is true that there are chem- chemical barriers and these may be in the form of you know analogy to the human immune system and there is uh, i mean you you brought up the notion of organ transplant and you know i think deepa kind of brought up the notion of a friend but if we need an organ biologically it's it, is it is it strictly a better idea to go to a closer relative and all of that 1/2 1/4 1/8 1/3 yes 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 is it is it a, is it a super robust result is it established oh, well, all yeah, of you agree yeah, on it yeah no doubt about it because it is a genetic system mm-hmm. and the more likely to share genes the better is the probability that you will accept that organ graft and unfortunately friendship won't work friendship, <laughs> friendship <laughs> doesn't work with organ transplant yes. and and does it have to it, do with it me but it's almost by chance yeah. it's more likely that your relatives will match compared to a friend right 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 so clearly at an on evolutionary time scale if one thinks of it in the, those terms this is almost a method of natural selection right you kind of help people around you whatever not people species organisms uh uh conspecifics and so on 
is there is there is there a so is kinship a cause or an effect what's happening if you are thinking well i don't know whether you want to call it a cause or effect but kinship allows altruism to evolve in the absence of kinship altruism will not evolve so in natural selection we think of at least metaphorically a gene which is predisposing you to do something mm. so if i had a gene to help others and if that gene made me indiscriminately help anybody i come across at a significant cost to myself very quickly i will die and that gene will disappear from the population right the idea is that if the gene then somehow predisposes me to help my close relatives then even if i die in this process of helping my close relatives would have survived and therefore copies of that gene in those close relatives would not only have survived would probably have increased in number right so right. if you look at it strictly from the point of view of a gene hmm. then the gene is basically using me to make more copies of itself, itself. Yeah, you could think of it right. as making more copies of itself by making me altruistic and kill myself in the process <laughs> rather than survive so when you focus at the level of gene you see the world differently focus at the level of an organ you see the world differently individual you see differently family you see the world differently and now we are actually trying to look at all of these levels when you know, we study so natural brought up this notion of marriage right a while ago so by and large and he also spoke of some rules some customs and they seem to have gone on for generations so by and large is out breeding a superior natural selection method or is that why so if if for some reason in breeding in breeding it started millions of years ago would we have kind of knocked ourselves off the face of the planet i think you know, so more so, so i i, <laughs> you, you know I mean, it, yeah absolutely let yeah. me just put it in a more general rubric taking cues from what deepak and raghavendra have said yeah generally the uh, we want to help our relatives right the closer the relatives the more help we want to render and if you think of marriage as a form of helping then there are certain rules where we do not want to help our relatives Mm-hmm. how did this evolve we don't know we can never tell but one thing we know for sure that if you marry your close relatives chances are that you are going to get children with genetic deformities and that's because of inbreeding right now what came before and what came after we will never know but, but clearly the knowledge a, of genetics has come only lately right? much later so much later but observationally yeah. and as a result of demographic costs that are on the level has, of phenotype it's been known for like many yeah, many many it doesn't have to be known the hmm. costs were borne by the species that's true and because of certain kinds of probably it was not it was not thinking in a very conscious way but over a period of time through experience people learn again this memory but interesting notion of innate versus the yes, other notion yes, that you brought yes, out it yes. became an innate part of right it became an innate part people probably experience that if we procreate by mating our very close relatives then the offspring don't survive and there is a very great cost involved so the outbreeding probably developed we would never know which is cause and which is effect, effect but uh, what deepak said is absolutely right that you know we try to outbreed and this is a biological impact of outbreeding or positive biological impact of outbreeding and if it was the vice versa then there would be a negative impact how are our different cultures and societies the same on this oh, is there something about kinship systems deepak and it's a strict question which is the same across all societies all cultures no i think uh, there are deals of variations um you know one of the founders some of some aspects some parameters there are some aspects obviously there are connected uh, and uh, that's common to all uh, that is to say that 
every society, every known society has relatives by marriage and relatives by descent and blood and so on. That, that is... That's, that's, yeah, that's, 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 that's kind standard. of obvious. Yeah. Okay, okay. But having said that, there are great deals of variations in mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great anthropologists, uh, one of the founders of uh, the modern discipline, uh, actually wanted to go and test the Oedipus thesis. Who's this? A uh, fellow called Bronislaw Malinowski. Okay. Uh, he went off to the Trobrian Island. So he says, okay, I'm going to look at a society where there are no social fathers. Mm-hmm. There may be biological fathers, but the father... Once There's no uh, one who performs the social function. No of social father. functions. The social function is then p- performed by the mother's brother. Right. And he went over there and uh, hey presto, there is no Oedipus conflict. It's not the universal. So uh, the Trobrianders, uh, you know, these tribal groups and so on, uh, uh, are re- completely uh, the kind of relation between uh, son and mother and son and father and uh, is all is all very uh, completely non-Oedipal, if you want. Hmm. And so his 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 thing was that no, you can't generalize the Oedipal con- uh, uh, complex. In the same fashion, you cannot say that there is one unit of kinship which is generalizable everywhere across. Yeah, so is there one elementary unit? Yeah, is there? there? No. Are there are there hypotheses? Are there well? Are there, uh, there are, are lots there of candidates for. There are. There are such uh, as what? There are. Uh, uh, there is uh, uh, the 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 most powerful theory which uh, argues for kinship and why people marry because it's 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 actually a puzzle. Why do people marry? Yes, there is a genetic argument. There is a biological argument because you will destroy the group. But what does having asked that question? What does marriage do? But isn't the, isn't a mother offspring unit a consistent unit? There may be no fathers, but there would always be mothers, right? Isn't 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 that or because we, unfertilized eggs are fine, but is there such a thing as unfertilized sperm? That doesn't happen, right? Well, uh, but then that would be an incomplete family, no? Yeah, then you you would not uh, you would not say. I mean, generally speaking, not in recent times, but that would sure. be an incomplete family. Uh, uh, that that is, it would not be a unit of analysis without the a final relationship. Hmm. So you were talking about some candidates. Uh, well, there people. is. I mean, you 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 say that uh, uh, actually at the heart of the emergence of any kinship system mm-hmm. is the prohibition on incest. Right. right. And incest prohibition. Pro- yes. That is something probably universal. That's, that's universal. 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 Of focusing on what is common. When anthropologists talk about it, they have the habit of focusing on the variation, how it is different. Right. Now, clearly both are important, <laughs> but you will find that biologists take great pride in saying this is common across all cultures. This is common across the entire. So it is that commonality that they are interested they're in. Looking for laws versus right. cases. Whereas when right, anthropologists talk about it, yeah. they're saying, look, it's so different in that culture. And personally, I think we need both. We need to yeah, do absolutely. both of these things. But sometimes there is unnecessary controversy because they don't realize that this is, we are looking at one side of the coin. Yeah, that's and a disciplinary it's quibble. It's true that we are, both sides are looking, but it, as long as somebody is looking at that side of the coin, I'm looking at this coin, we have to put these two together. So what are the laws of kinship, Deepak? I mean, the prohibition on incest. 
is, I think, uh, common. The break of the law, on, in, if you violate the law on incest, the variations are enormous. Mm-hmm. In some societies, it's no more than the clapping of hands. In other societies, it's punishable by death. Mm. Uh, so you will get, uh, uh, but all societies recognize that you must maintain the. They either incest, rebuke uh, it or punish it. It's 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 not it, it's not lauded anywhere. It's not anywhere, and uh, when it is, and then you have incredible myths, the Oedipus myth, which right. sort of uh, begins Antigone, to, um, yeah, the Antigone uh, yeah. Uh, myth, the, which begins to actually uh, see what happens when uh, uh, when these laws are broken. And what it results in. Uh, so if you begin to, if you read uh, uh, Sophocles and you begin to uh, look at the three plays, the Theban plays, uh, uh, you'll find that uh, it works on at least two different registers. The first mm. register is of uh, 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 the father-son, father-mother relationship, mm. and uh, the father, be- the son becoming uh, the f- husband of the mother, and uh, after killing his father, and so on. And uh, once he realizes what he's done, he repents. He takes his eyes out and right. uh, uh, he wants to kill himself and so on. Uh, but the other is the relation of Antigone, the sister and daughter of Oedipus, her relationship to Oedipus. Right. And that's a relationship which is uh, within the same generation. Right. It's both across generations and within the same generation. But right. what Antigone is doing is really in very powerful ways taking a claim to mourn for one of her brother's death. Hmm. And saying that, uh, you know, you may condemn him, but there is no law that me as a sister uh, sort of uh, allows for, you know, I can't I can't live with this. Hmm. Uh, and so she, in a sense, in her reply to uh, the king says that uh, if I had lost a husband, I could marry again. Hmm. If I had lost a son, I could have a son again. But I've lost a brother. I can't have a brother again. <laughs> this is the law on kinship, uh, on incest that is being uh, 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 stated very powerfully. And that's the that's way... That's so interesting. That, you know, turns the world. So you then begin to say that, of course, uh, underlying all of this uh, in the Oedipus complex is uh, is the incest uh, prohibition. Now, anthropologists and go and study this and, you know, they are interested in doing this kind of uh, stuff. Uh, that's one. But there's a material side to it, I think. And the material side to it is that if we'll, you marry... We'll get to that, Deepak, if you don't mind. But, Agavindra, we spoke about this notion of whether there are always mothers. Is that is that... I mean, it sounds very, very obvious, but... If there seem to be very uh, lots of exceptions in the there animal appears world. There to be at least one example where the DNA from the sperm is passed on to the next generation without any accompanying genes of the mother. Apparently, there's one such example. So, a female, I think in this case it was an ant, actually mates with a male, and only the male's chromosomes go to the next generation to produce a daughter. So here is a, then a daughter with a father but without a mother. So occasionally such things might happen. We don't even know to what extent it is sort of a But is that, is that just an instance of only the male's genes going forward? Huh, or it's, only the uh, male genes going forward. But there so, is an act of procreation or something, right? So uh, Raja, Yeah, but finally... Raghavan said a very interesting thing. Yeah. Something that happens in the human... It might get too technical, so I'm not going to uh, go deep into it. There's something called X chromosome inactivation. Okay. Yeah, which is that the females have two, right? Mm. Only one of them is active. Mm. 
Mm. One of the extreme, the other is completely inactivated. Mm. This has ramifications in terms of inheritance, um, passing off on of genes from one generation to another. It might get too technical, but this is akin to what uh, Raghavan. So, was what saying. happens in that context? Don't so, mind being technical. So, we'll see if we follow. Yeah, it. So, so essentially, we are deployed, right? Right. The females, with respect to genes in the X chromosome, are deployed. Right. The males are haploid because right. they have one X chromosome, one Y chromosome. Correct. The females actually behave as haploid. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so, so they almost act like males. They, yeah, they shut exactly. down. Uh, but they don't have a Y chromosome. They don't have a Y, so the other matter. X is inactivated in some ways, and so you know. Both but there is behave. already an X, so there's an X Y. Yeah, that's right. interesting. Right, and so if you're a gene who end up on the X chromosome got inactivated, then that's an evolutionary dead end for you. Yes. There's all kinds of interesting yeah. ramifications. But I want to ask both Partha and uh, Deepak because my knowledge about this is sort of very uh, primitive. Isn't it true that there is uh, if that the effect of inbreeding depends on the history of inbreed. So if a population has been inbred for a long time, that's a great then point. Then they sort of get rid of the deleterious genes, and now it's no longer that. And isn't it true that there are human uh, communities such as uh, uh, people in South India who have actually practiced close uh, marriage amongst close relatives for long enough but is for there to be? Is this true? I mean, so, it, so uh, when we calculate right. the inbreeding coefficient. Right. There are two ways of calculation. One is assuming that the parents themselves are non-inbred. Correct. The other is if the parents are inbred, you'd have to take that into account. Right. One plus F. Right. Exactly. F right. So, yes. of course, I mean, uh, the inbreeding accumulation in the parents right. have to be taken into account. What is F? F is the inbreeding coefficient. Sure. So the simplest, the one half, one quarter, all those kinds of numbers that Raghavendra and I we were talking about. That's assuming that the parents themselves are non-inbred. Once the parents are inbred, then you have to add something to it. Right. Yeah. So it'll be, it's going to become one quarter plus one quarter times F, where F is the inbreeding coefficient right. of the father. So clearly, yeah, so, that doesn't happen so it, in the case of South India. I mean, uh, uh, because the, uh, the 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 if it's mother's brother, it's coming from outside the group. Yeah. Isn't it? But in the case of in this case where the parents are inbred, and if they have two kids, two sons, are they? Do they share fifty percent each? They share more, more than they share more. Yes. Of course, that's the whole idea. That's of the yeah, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Because um, already the mother and the father are sharing something. So they are not yeah. sharing so zero anymore. So let's make anymore. this more complex. So who can the closest relative be? So if these two kids happen to be identical twins of each other, and they have inbred parents mm-hmm. <laughs> who are also let's say identical, yeah, boy so and they, girl, they, they have some. Yeah, right. So they is, have some is sharing. that the closest relatedness possible? What's the close? Selfing is the closest relatedness possible. Right. Sorry, selfing is the closest relatedness. Selfing. selfing. So cotton. Take cotton. Yeah, we are sitting no, in the cotton mill. We are right? in the human world. No, no, no. But uh, we can't. We can't. No. So in the human world, you can't. Who who can so be are, one? Who can be the closest relative of an individual? So identical, identical twins. twins would be the ones who are completely read by one point zero. So how? What's the proportion of genes shared? Oh, a hundred percent. Hundred percent. The identical twins. Identical twins. Identical twins, but uh, again, I mean, in terms of thinking about it, selfing is a good example. And there are plants where the pollen grains fall on the stigma of the same, same. flower and the fruit, and that's that. That's the maximum inbreeding coefficient you can get. That's so that's like cloning, right? You that's just like create clone. yourself all over again. Exactly. Which so, which so isn't doesn't this have to do a little bit, Raghavendra, with the nature of reproduction? So there can be asexual reproduction, right? You just you don't need a mother or a father. You just keep going from one generation to another. So, does the notion of kin make any sense there, or we kind of misapplying, carrying a notion to the wrong place? Well, in a 
completely parthenogenetic species, it probably makes no sense. Uh, yeah. It all comes in when there is sexual reproduction. If, uh, but in 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 that kind of a context, are all entities like the other, identical to the other? Yeah. So if a bacterium is reproducing by multiplying, then they're all identical. They're all clones. Basically, they're all clones of each other. It's the when the moment you have sexual reproduction, then the question of kinship uh, arises. With completely parthenogenic, completely asexual reproduction, there is no concept of of kinship. And the interesting thing, most interesting things happen when you have a mixture of uh, right. asexual and sexual reproduction, as in the case of my wasps, for example. Then, of course, things get uh, very interesting and very complicated. And from an evolutionary point of view, again, uh, Partha, isn't it true that there is an optimal amount of inbreeding or an optimal amount of outbreeding I've heard numbers, uh, things like second cousin or third cousin mentioned. Optimal because if it's completely sense? outbred, then sort of the the constellation of genes which have been tried and proven and tested completely disappear. If there is uh, too close, then of course there is the problem of lethal relatives. And there's, there's a notion that there is something in between, there's sort of an optimum amount of so critical distance. So, so actually, Sewell Wright, Sewell Wright did this, right? Right. right. Uh, the shifting right. balance theory right. of evolution. Right. So here, the optimality is in the sense of the environment that you're living right. in. So if you have gr- grown up in for several generations in an environment, you have adapted yourself to an environment, and now if you bring in genes from the outside, those genes may not be adapted exactly. to the environment. Right. So he called this landscape of evolution or the allele frequencies might shift. Right. So if you want to prevent that shift. Because you have reached yeah. an optimum, you could reach. You you could actually work out equations where you would do some amount of outbreeding and some amount of inbreeding, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those those are. But and you could come up with an optimum, optimum level yes, of outbreeding. Yes. That's so, very interesting. But I, I think you brought in the notion of environment, right? And there yes. is obviously the interface of both genetic absolutely, factors and environmental absolutely. factors. If twins were to be separated at birth, and they go to very different environments over a long period of time. Does that result in, and if they were to marry, let's say, 20, 30 years later, in this inbreeding coefficient case or something to that effect? So the inbreeding coefficient will not change because they have the same genes. Um, but but yeah. if they're so reared we're trying to apart, measure the impact of environment. Yeah, if they're right? reared, that's how we we figure out what kind of impact uh, does do genes have on a specific disease and what kind of right. the, uh, impact does the environment have. So we separate out in, uh, monozygotic twins or like twins at birth. Right. They have the same repertoire of genes. But they are grown up in different different environments, and therefore, if they have different diseases, we can actually measure the impact of environment on that disease, right. which we could not have measured if they were reared together in the same environment. Right. So right. this is a study right. design which we actually exploit, or we exploit this notion to uh, come up with a study design to be able to understand the impact of the environment on diseases. Right, right, right. There is... Um if you think of the notion of inheritance, which you brought up a little while ago, Deepak, um, is this, is this, so I mean, if you think of the institution of marriage, for example, is it almost inevitably an economic category as well? Does it, I mean, we kind of spoke of this notion of keeping wealth within the same group and so on as well. Um, how robust is that notion? Partly, I think it's economic. Uh, I mean, just that, you know, I mean, uh, this business of uh, 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 kinship uh, without the mother, uh, you mm. know, it seems uh, 
really fascinating it's 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 a you know it's a wonderful and i wonder what that would do to hindi cinema mere paas maa hai i mean well, it doesn't matter <laughs> you know uh, so you you can actually uh, but you know when you're beginning to think about uh, the materiality of uh, uh, of marriage mm. i'm not talking of uh, uh, of of descent groups i'm talking uh, now specifically of marriage well what do you mean when you say materiality you brought it up a while ago uh, as well that it allows for when you are forced to look outside your group for a mate mm-hmm. uh, what you get is also an exchange of goods and services between your group and the outside group mm-hmm. now in uh, what does that mean like in what context you mean dowry you mean in which a, a new kind price, of exchange platform gets bride created price dowry uh, you know items of uh, gifts which which are very important sure uh, you get uh, you get the emergence of a certain kind of exchange economy that right. develops with marriage right uh, so that some commentators say that the exchange of women is equivalent to the exchange of goods and services right because that is what is also being exchanged levi strauss or people like that yeah, say so that, you'll you get know. the the, the levi straussian uh, sort of argument right. and that is precisely because you want to protect yourself against the prohibition against mm. the incest prohibition mm. otherwise the group will become too small it'll atrophy it'll die, it'll die off right. because uh, the distribution of males to females you in any you can keep narrowing your options and yeah, you can just die yeah right. it will just die off so it's not only a genetic argument it's just a, also an argument of that there will not be enough mates available uh, 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 at any given point given the same age sets and so on Right. So what you do is then you're forced to look outside the group, and once you're forced to look outside the group, you allow for the exchange of all sorts of uh, uh, forms of exchange, and among these forms of exchange, perhaps the most fundamental is the exchange of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you will get uh, you will get not only the exchange of goods and services and uh, and things like that, but you will also get uh, you will also get uh, uh, newer linguistic yeah. experiences. Yeah. The moment you get newer linguistic experiences, you have the groundwork laid for a recognition of differences. Yeah. Uh, and the moment you get and that is what uh, uh, that is the importance of marriage, uh, in a manner of speaking. It is through marriage that one will actually be able to arrive at ideas of what differences are. right uh not uh, if you if you do, if you don't emphasize marriage and if you re, you remain within the in group uh the idea of differences will be an atrophied one it will be uh, uh, in a sense impoverished right is that's the kind of argument that uh, someone like uh, levi strauss would make right. and then there are ways of exchange you know whether you exchange in every alternate generation or every uh, uh, succeeding generation and so on you know this is the who are the wife givers who are the wife takers can the wife takers become the wife givers right. uh, they can become the wife uh, givers in an in the succeeding generation and then in the next generation they will become wife takers and so on you know you you so you'll get those uh, sorts of uh, uh, dynamic systems of exchange that are constantly developed so this is what one means when one says that there is a materiality that is uh, invested in uh, in any kind of uh, system of language there's such yeah. fascinating parallels yeah what he was describing to me that you know after every so many generations you do this reminded me of protozoans where for many <laughs> generations they will reproduce asexually but every few generations they have to re- reproduce sexually in order for them to be viable you find this in single cell cell organisms how, exactly the same and how phenomenon. periodic is that uh, well again it depends quite a bit on the environment so mm-hmm. if you want to cope with a new environment then you need to get sort of genes from outside you need to get goods and services to from outside if the environment is constant then you can keep all reproducing asexually and there's no great harm done but 
the environment might change and then you may not have the tools to survive the new environment so the successful lines of these uh, single celled animals are those that periodically sort of mate and become sexual which is the equivalent of outbreeding here so it's, it's exactly the same thing that happens in single celled animals which and you see in human society actually ragavendra even the zoos you see yes. they bring in yes. once in a while once in a while yeah genes from the outside so that you know this doesn't you, you mean the zoos yes otherwise they will the get wardens yeah. of the zoos and the zoo yeah otherwise they'll get so inbred After that they will then be susceptible exactly. to disease after a certain amount of time they'll bring in genes from new genes from the outside and yeah. uh, so that it's viable the offspring are viable that's so so in a way outbreeding leads to greater sustainability over a long over the long term but does it have to do with the complexity of the well, organism in fact the most successful theory that explains why there is sexual reproduction in the first place uh-huh. is based on this idea that if you don't have sexual reproduction then during your course of your lifetime your parasites who have such a short generation time will go through hundreds of generations get naturally selected and will be able to kill you with great certainty so if you shuffle your cards and your offspring are not clones of yourself but have different constellation of genes then the parasite has to start all over again this is called red queen hypothesis so the uh, the whole idea of sexual reproduction is premised on this idea that you need to fool the parasites by becoming different in every generation it's simply an extension of that idea no ragavendra uh, that's so beautiful but you know they they was there a world many billions of years ago whenever life started four and a half billion years ago whenever um when all reproduction was asexual yes and, and asexual was followed yeah, by yeah, sexual absolutely. because it was an adaptive yes. response to and and i expect that there were not many parasites yet at that time and the because, moment things got more yeah, complicated because there could have been a world where even the parasites were asexual right uh, yeah. but somehow so just it was just a response parasites many of them are asexual even today right but uh, the point is that when things are very simple then asexual reproduction is adequate when things get complicated such as one form of life becoming a parasite another form of life but there's such a nice parallel between the origin of sexual reproduction and the periodic uh, shift from asexual to sexual reproduction to what they do in the zoos to what deepak has been telling us about people who sort of marry from outside it, there is a, again as a biologist marriage i always see the underlying commonality which for me is most fascinating yeah and marriage is just some kind of a sanction for uh, something of this nature what's the future what's the very long term future I mean we can you you kind of told us something about the last four and a half I can tell you about wasps but I think we should let Deepak <laughs> say about future of marriage <laughs> no, no I mean I you know one of my relatives was really sick in hospital so I asked the doctor uh, tell me which disease has a good future so <laughs> he said all virus borne diseases and all fungi fungus diseases so fungus and virus are uh, uh, are our future in a manner of speaking because they don't die i mean they live forever i mean 400 500 years or something of that sort uh, you know but if you're looking at uh, no i think you know i'll come back to that deepak if you don't mind but the question i, I was trying to get to raghavendra is that does sexual reproduction invariably lead to more complex organisms does it lead to emergence of complexity obviously just even so in the context that we're speaking of are there are there somewhat complex organisms which are asexual which reproduce asexually 
or is it by and large as a very very rough rule of thumb would it be rough fair to say rough thumb i think sexual uh, reproduction is more complex but here the so called simplicity and complexity mm-hmm. are confounded by history so it happens that they came earlier so they were simpler but i'll tell you what sexual reproduction really does rather than make you more complex it makes you more variable and more unpredictable that's adaptable the way to be well. yeah. adaptable adaptable, well. yeah. adaptable and therefore and more variable and unpredictable and because you are variable and unpredictable the parasites are lost they have to start their game all over again and that's what sexual reproduction really does does to you so if we look at all the 7 odd billion people alive in the world today are they likely to be dead ends like people who have totally unique genes which obviously let's say the parents are no more and so are there are there are there dead ends in the se- I don't think so I don't think so primarily because so the question is that if if we do this thing of if if for a second we assume kinship is a continuous variable mm-hmm. and then we say that you get a score of 0 or 1 in the case of identical twins it's 1 so can there be scores which are 0 meaning that i'm unlike anyone else 100% of the gene pool is different no it no. can never be because we all have a common ancestor so if you go far back in time so all it, of us will have a common ancestor that's fine i i get that so i'm, I'm driving to this so how close to zero does it get is it asymptotic what happens so zero to one is fine it's kind of very rough cut now the question is how unlike everybody else or so every every So theoretically if you think about a random mating population mm-hmm. offspring of random mated randomly mated uh, parents will have inbreeding coefficient of 0 right they will not share yeah so if there is ideal but ideal random mating does not take place in human societies so we can like i said that empirically if we try to estimate how much of sharing is there because of common ancestry it will never be exactly equal to zero but theoretically you can think of a completely randomly mated population whose offspring will have inbreeding coefficient of zero won't happen in human societies i doubt if it will happen in any societies because of common common thread of evolution all of every organism would have evolved from a common ancestor but i don't know about you know protozoa and because they they reproduce so fast how quickly whether it diminishes asymptotically or not i don't know but the slope may be very uh, quite variable across very various kinds of species is kinship a continuous variable no why why that what i mean is that when you measure it it does not have to be 0.5 uh, and 0.25 or 0.3 or 0.4 of the power of n it can yeah. be very granular half to the power of n. n so that's what it is yes and that uh, can with large n it, it can become, become anything right 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 we go back to you deepak on the question that we were discussing what is the future of relatedness can there be new so as as we go around with each other in different ways and new kinds of marriages happen is it likely that there would be see i think uh, 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 family structures are going to become weaker marriage is going to become stronger is there and if you ask me and uh, the 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 evidence for that is that rates of divorce are going to increase mm-hmm. which means that there's going to be more and more marriage 
But whether these marriages <laughs> last is a separate issue. I'm not talking about that. Yeah, but in terms of number but, of marriages, but, yes, I even think, for just yeah, 1.1 remarriages. Marriage whatever. has a great future. I'm not sure about uh, family structures. <laughs> I think that socialization within the family is going to fray at some point. Uh, uh, I think it's going to come with certain costs. But more and more people are having children without actually getting married. Or that is con- you consider that as marriage? That marriage, yeah. Or you consider that? I consider that as marriage. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, but I, 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 I tend to think that. Uh, 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 that uh, you know, in my head at least, I uh, I make a certain kind of distinction between marriage and family. I don't uh, see these two as uh, uh, the same. Are you I, able to go from familial organization to social organization? Is is that? Oh yes, you can in multiple ways. You can you can transit uh, from the familial to the social uh, mm. uh, in all sorts of uh, uh, ways. Mm. And we have. Uh, so much evidence in our own society to actually uh, track that mm. whether it's in the entertainment industry in uh, in business world in uh, you know in political families and so on you'll get a way in which there is almost a merging of uh, the from the familial to uh, uh, the social you know they they come together in uh, literal ways in empirical ways uh, but uh, if you're saying that uh, uh, there is a way in which you think about family structures and you think that these sorts of patterns of socialization are going to operate outside yes i think those are under stress i think those are changing I think the relation between parents and uh, uh, children are changing. I think between uh, uh, grandparents and parents and children and so on are changing. I think the idea of uh, living in large family clusters is on its way out. I think it was a myth that you said that there was something called the joint family. Actually, uh, it was the variations were so incredible. It was difficult to isolate a single joint family unit and say, structurally, this is what a joint family is. That's very interesting. Uh, yeah, what we are getting is... So what uh, was it then? What was it? It was just cohabitation? It was just... Uh, it was through a variety of factors. Uh, principally, it was uh, a way by which uh, you were able to think about a place of home for the the woman. In a, in a rigidly patriarchal kind of uh, setup, there was the recognition that once a woman left her natal home, there was very little there was very little that she could do to get back. Right. And so you so had it goes to, to give it that sense of permanence and when you talk of permanence, you talk of yes. generational coherence going from one level to another, yeah. some stability, Something things of that of nature. that sort was happening. I think That's very that, interesting. Uh, though, those, things are, those things are changing, not as rapidly in a good way as one would want. But you know, I think uh, earlier in the conversation, Raghavendra spoke or alluded to this notion between altruism and kinship. So what is the so if 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 the if the familial structure is going to change, let's not say good or bad, is going to change, is going to fray from the structures that we're currently familiar with. What does that mean for the nature of altruism and us helping each other? There are obviously different modes. There are other ways of doing in, it. See, this in is, the in the uh, late nineteenth century, it was Kropotkin who uh, reworked Darwin's thesis and right. said that uh, it's not only the struggle uh, uh, for survival, but it's also mutual aid. Yes, and it's mutual aid uh, uh, within the species. That is the relation between mother and child is built on a notion of mutual aid. One is going to aid the other because uh, just as I give birth to my son, 
uh, my son gives birth to me as father. There is a doubleness that is built yes. into that. Yes, isn't yes. it? I mean, it, 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 it works in that way. And that's a sense of mutual aid uh, that is there. So mutual aid is here. And if by mutual aid you mean this is another t- term for uh, altruism, yes. I would look at altruism also very centrally in the relationship one has with one's friends. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think it can uh, uh, be only an instrumental relationship. Mm. And if altruism uh, means that there is a certain kind of uh, uh, sharing without expectation of return, mm. uh, then uh, I think that... Uh, without of, reciprocity. Without reciprocity, mm. I think in certain forms of gift relationships, gift relationships of, are of those sorts. I think in its highest form, the teacher-student relationship is a relationship of uh, uh, non-reciprocity. Uh, from the point of view of uh, the teacher, there is. A and there certain, are many other. And but from the point of view. Many other dyadic. Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, from the point of view of the student, it's also a relation, and it must be a relation of uh, uh, betrayal and stealing. And yes, I agree with that. I think those are good things. Mm. I don't think these are necessarily bad things. Mm. But really, if you are beginning to think of uh, altruism, then you are beginning to think of uh, altruism in a relationship uh, uh, where there is no pre-given relationship already in place. And that is where altruism, uh, for me, uh, uh, sort of comes in. And the point—that's the most uh, radical or the most exalted form of altruism, uh, if altru- I can call it that. Yes. Yeah. And uh, uh, is there uh, the Pantho, Is there? If you think of, does this question interest you? This business of altruism as a geneticist? Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. The evolution of altruism in itself is very, very interesting, and how it relates to relatedness, kinship. Um, all problems are not solved I don't think so uh, genetic may not be the only explanation to all of this I mean that's one explanation but may not be the only explanation because uh, society is not completely ruled by genetics I think there's a lot of environmental sure. factors and all of this and you, um, so you, would you ascribe and culture you know, culture culture, culture. I, I, that sometimes goes uh, in consonance with genetics sometimes not it doesn't yes, yes so a lot of I mean if so, if one had to find causal uh, factors behind altruism, the environment likely plays a fairly strong role. And uh, by environment, I actually use uh, you know the culture, all yeah, of this. Uh, it's, it's not not just the conglomeration, not just of, the biological yeah. environment, but not the, not just the physical environment, but, but also intangible the, the cultural, cultural artifacts yes, and everything yes. else. Mm. So, uh, what was your question? You said if we were to study altruism, then what would we do? No, I think the question is that, I mean, at least in the way Hamilton spoke of things, there was a very strong correlation between uh, kinship and altruism. There would be, uh, of course there would be. But, you know, he alluded to the measurement of cost. Right. The measurement of cost is not simple. And right? the environment and that, might... So that, to the, the cost, of cost. It comes yeah. back to this idea of because benefit and cost are difficult to measure, they have been relatively ignored. Uh, That's a great perfect point. example of this is the Kropotkin example he mentioned. Mm. We tend to forget how uh, how important even the physical environment right. is. In Kropotkin's worldview, your real enemy was the physical environment outside in Siberia or wherever you were. <laughs> and then it is obvious that you would give mutual aid to each other completely irrespective of kinship because that's the only way to survive. Right. On the opposite side, you are people in Victorian England where your enemies were really your neighbors, uh, anybody outside your family and genealogy. And there the family and kinship was far more important for survival in order to survive in this uh, 
competitive world out there. So the worldview of people, say, in Victorian England and in Siberia, obviously were very different. And today we know why. <laughs> so two questions, and we'll we'll wrap up with that. The first question posed to both of you, Partho and Raghavendra, is it possible to clone ourselves as human beings? How difficult is that? And at the technical level so if you want me to do a thought experiment the answer is yes mm. if you want to uh, if you ask me how practical it is i would say it's inordinately practical uh, impractical but uh, impractical in, in, at what level it's it's not practical that's what i'm saying yes but if you want a thought experiment yes it's doable because if it's technically if it's uh, e- easy to clone a gene if it's easy to clone a bacterium we should be able to clone ourselves yeah but then again you need a lot of biological understanding the interplay uh, between organ systems the biological pathways etc it will take yawns for us to be, to for us to that. be technically able to actually clone human beings yes yes so if you really ask me i'll say impossible but as a thought experiment i would say yes it's possible only as a thought experiment and what would you what would have made you say no to the thought experiment because thought exp- is that just imagination is that that's just a, that's just an imagination so and an is... extrapolation the extrapolation it's possible people can argue that it is possible to understand every single biological pathway formation of every single organ and therefore technically possible to clone a human but how long it's going to take we don't know so that's why it's a, it's it's an ima- in in an imaginative way we can think that a human can be cloned right. but in a practical sense i think it's almost impossible is it impossible raghavendra but what if you take the route of simply taking a stem cell and growing a human from that then it seems technically less formidable so no? uh, different organs have different kinds of stem no, but you cells have, it's uh, uh, primordial stem cells right you have in In that's then, still that's still a, a model right we still yeah, don't know it won't require you to understand uh, organ systems and anything else it just you have to overcome the technical sure. hurdle of sure. so to get technically less formidable and if people do it i think that's the route they will try try first because we are already in the stage how many, how many where you can take stem cells and grow liver cells right. you can take stem cells and make a, you know, blood yeah, cells yeah. so it's uh, from that it's uh, one I Big think step, the, but the trick might be putting that hole together from those parts. I think yes, probably so, what uh, um, Partho is yeah, implying. Yeah, without an understanding of the interrelationships, can you just build up parts and put them uh, together to build be, a human? Is there anything emergent in how we come together, or is it just things added up together? That's no, it's question. probably not added up together. That's my belief, and we need to understand how these interact with each other. But again, and how many I mean, different kind of stem cells do we have? So we, I don't even, I don't yeah, think that we, we even know. know. We don't know. We don't know but that. We don't yeah. know that. Yeah. So we know a but few stem cells. But I think people cells. will be working towards this yes, because there yes, is yes. an underlying sure. philosophy. Sure. You know, Richard Feynman said, "What I don't create, I don't understand." Yes, yes. right. Yes. Driven with that philosophy, the ultimate goal or the ultimate proof of understanding something is to be able to create a zero. Yes, that's going to drive uh, people. It may not happen. So if we can clone human beings, we at least understand ourselves physiologically one hundred percent or very close to that. Yes, but yeah, they, but there will be moratorium. Yeah, there'll be moratorium. towards all of this because there is something called ethics human society is guided by ethics yes cloning ourselves opens up a whole area of frank creating frankensteins and i think we ourselves as ethical animals will put a stop to all of this yeah i would hate to see a clone of myself but that's that, that's fine so <laughs> even as we uh, yeah. walk along that path even if you are sort of 
0.001% of the so way we learn a great deal along the way when you try to do these kinds of things it would be lovely to walk into a departmental store <laughs> and buy a liver <laughs> right yeah. lovely yeah. and and that is going to happen that's going to happen it's yeah. going to happen because as we understand these stem cells will be able to grow organs sure and this organ transplantation we can we don't have to depend on relatives right. we will grow these organs they will be grown from your own stem cells perhaps you know uh, harvested at birth and they'll be in shops and, and you go and buy them and you can have your ship will become irrelevant irrelevance of kinship so raghavan and i will write a book irrelevance of kinship how about that <laughs> last question deepak i will end with you how important is birth or how contingent is birth likely to be to this whole notion of relatedness long term future 500 years out 1000 years out birth meaning uh, because uh, i i think obviously descendants i mean a lot of our relatedness the kinships the i mean obviously you brought in the whole notion of friendship um i mean in a biological sense in a physical sense uh, birth yes i can see that uh, its importance is going to continue but i'm uh, i i i also see that uh, uh, more and more there are, there is going to be a, an attempt at uh, adoption uh mm-hmm. and that especially if uh, uh, single sex families grow mm. then uh, uh, how do we uh, 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 how do we uh, you know propagate uh and how do we propagate ourselves how do we uh, give our stuff for inheritance and things like that so you'll go either through uh, prob- through adoption or through uh, uh, surrogacy now uh, surrogacy is uh, an interesting area to begin to think about uh, kinship where does kinship begin mm. does it begin in the petri dish does it begin in uh, someone else's womb yeah. uh, you know so when you begin to ask those sorts of uh, uh, questions then the idea of stable kinship structures tends to fray Yeah. So I and obviously think, I mean in and in this case biologically you want mother I mean you have one mother two mothers in the well, case no, you can have three parents and four parents you know technically you can uh, yes. you can you know you, that can go on yes. uh, 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 so I I think that the terminology by which uh, uh, the parents will be addressed will change Mm. I think it will not be mother father I think there will be other terms that will be used I think uh, and there are already indications that this is uh, uh, happening uh so that you but they would be mother like roles because they clearly there will be birthing uh yes there will be mother like roles and there will be father like roles but those roles I think roles, the father like role is probably those will not be fixed they'll right. switch yeah sure so sometimes uh, 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 as it happens in so our families so uh, uh, you know we uh, we sort of uh, I mean sometimes I do the job that my wife does sometimes she does the job that I do and you know and there, there there's a switching sure now you don't do it consciously but there is a code sure where you and there you, could be a code switching but the whole point is whether that code switching can be biological which yeah. presumably it can't be that's right terrific i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and thank we you. look thank forward you. to having you soon again thank, thank you. you thank, thank you, you very much take care